My dear Bagginses and Boffins, Tukes and Brandybucks, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Bracegirdles, and Proudfoots. Proud feet. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, nigh 20 years hence. Gandalf, my old friend, this will be a night to remember. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, just known as Emily for now. Today's episode is Concerning Hobbits, our second episode on 2001's Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. But first, our spoiler warning for this, and basically all episodes, is that we are assuming you know these films back and front. We will provide recaps for everything we cover, but those will be crafted more as a refresher than blow-by-blow plot beats. We will also likely reference knowledge from the source books, commentaries, interviews, and hell, maybe even the Hobbit movies. I don't know how much we can spoil at this point, but just know we are assuming more than passing familiarity. And I'll just editorialize and say we are almost always going to definitely mention the source books. Uh, So I will clean up that spoiler warning for future episodes. So before we dive into the recap for today... Something we wanted to address early on is the discourse between theatrical versus extended editions, which is a raging debate among Lord of the Rings film fans, and often the first question asked whenever I tweet, I'm doing a Lord of the Rings marathon. For the sake of this podcast, in terms of memory and accessibility, we will be focusing on the theatrical versions mainly, and don't worry, I hear you booing. There will be times where we will discuss the extended versions, but we're really interested in the films released for mass public consumption, the ones that run on TV, etc. But I'll hand it off to Emily first for her thoughts and then chime in with my own afterward. Yeah, so I was um, actually, and I think quite accidentally, uh, first made to watch the extended editions uh, the first time I sat down to watch these movies. So those are the ones that I guess I feel more nostalgic for, so to speak. But I do think there are some, maybe some small pacing and creative choices issues in the extended editions that I don't necessarily see in the theatrical cut. So while they are the ones that I put on whenever I do want to marathon them, they are the ones that I'm actually the least interested in talking about. And I think one of the big reasons for that is that my big sort of discourse favorite for talking about Lord of the Rings is talking about the constraints involved in making both the books and the movies. And I think the extended editions, while they are obviously closer to what um, Peter Jackson saw in his mind while he was producing these movies, they have fewer of those actual in-the-moment constraints, and so I feel like are slightly less interesting historical documents just because those constraints have been lifted. Um, So I do prefer to talk about the theatrical editions, though I do prefer to watch the extended editions. Yeah, no, I agree with that, and I have a whole spiel that I'll get into in a second, but I didn't even think about the fact that, yeah, just speaking... Uh, to the films as an adaptation is inherently a little more interesting talking about the theatrical versions um, over the extended because they're able to, you know, include in some extra stuff that might help with the adaptation process, but is not what was presented, you know, massively to the public or whatever. Um, And I know the extended editions are beloved, especially by those who initially fell in love with Tolkien's books. Um, And it's not that complex, really. The extended edition 
affords you more time to spend in Middle Earth to get a little more detail and more direct pulls from the source text, etc. Um, if you love something, very often more is better. <laughs> and there are times when the extended scenes do add some context I would have wanted my first time out with these films. But all that said, I do really prefer the theatrical edition simply as films. I think they work better in terms of pacing and use cinematic tools to the fullest extent to fill in gaps where the movies can't orate for paragraphs at a time like the text do. I would never call a three-hour film brisk, but the theatrical versions really do zip along, and I'm sure that's by design. The extended versions are made to wallow just a bit more. And every part of Middle Earth still feels thoughtfully realized in the theatrical edition. You know, scratch it and all that world building and lore will still pour out. But more than anything, it really just is familiarity for me. Perhaps the most elder millennial aspect of me is that I still have and watch cable. And so much of what I love derives from, oh, I caught it on TV and got sucked into it every time for the last 20 years. Uh, my love of The Simpsons or favorite movies like The Fugitive or Hunt for Red October can be attributed to just that, how often I'd get shawshanked by them, for lack of a better word, even <laughs> with commercials. Uh, Lord of the Rings, like Star Wars and Harry Potter, would often get the marathon treatment on stations like TNT and USA, and whole weekends of TV time would be allocated to just running the films on repeat. Oh, look, Fellowship is on again. After I just watched it two days ago, well, I ain't got shit else going on, so why not fill it up again? Um, this is probably ha this probably has happened over a hundred times in my life since these films hit TV in the mid aughts. That is just like one of these experiences that I think is really interesting for me because I literally have not owned a television since I watched Lord of the Rings for the first time, so they're not at all TV not TV movies, but they're not movies that I would ever like think to just watch casually on TV. For me, when I put them on, they are like an event, um, which is probably why I always pick the extended editions because if I'm going to sit down and watch them, I may as well go for, go, you know, go big or go home. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when it gets into every, you know, sort of everything that you're talking about, that, that, that like necessary tightness and that like need to be clearer and more upfront about what the creative ethos of these films are. It just comes through so much more clearly in the theatrical cut than it does in the extended, I think. Um, almost kind of paradoxically, given that, you know, obviously Peter Jackson had more control over the extended edition, but I think, um, you know, I don't want to take like an auteur kind of approach to this, you know, the, the, the creativity that goes into dealing with the constraints on the theatrical release is a creativity that's sourced from, you know, hundreds of people. And I just think that, you know, the, the theatrical editions are, are so much more like rich with those kind of choices. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I'm sure we'll actually discuss some of that shorthand they use in the, the theatrical versions as we go along. Um, I will say there will be times where we will opine on some of the extended edition stuff. Um, I have lots of thoughts about Saruman's appearance in Return of the King, and I can't say they're necessarily all positive, <laughs> um, but uh, we will get to there. So I don't think we're going to be you know, like alighting over big chunks, but we just wanted to give you guys a layout of what we're actually going to cover. So um, if you want to follow along, you definitely, you know, are able to. And um, I believe the theatrical and extended editions are both available on HBO Max, at least as of time of this recording. Um, 
So, you know, you should have access to both. And, you know, anything that's worth discussing will probably be, you know, brought up anyways in due time. We cut to Frodo Baggins hanging out under a tree as the Fellowship of the Ring title card is laid on screen, followed by one of the few Chirons we see, the Shire, 60 years later, meaning 60 years after Bilbo obtained the One Ring. The sound of an old, travel-weary voice singing the Bilbo Baggins hit single, The Road Goes Ever On, brings Frodo to his feet. That voice, of course, belongs to Gandalf the Grey, arriving at the exact time he meant to. Gandalf and Frodo share a laugh before Frodo leaps into Gandalf's arms for a giant-sized hug. Should we do a hug counter for these movies? That's one. He's here for a long-expected party celebrating the 111st birthday of old Bilbo Baggins, but functionally, of course, we are still in the exposition part of our saga. Gandalf's arrival presents an opportunity to do some world-building. In a nice juxtaposition, Gandalf's focus seems to be on the current state and nature of the Shire, while Frodo needs to know everything about the outside world, which has taken little notice of the Shire, for which the Grey Wizard is thankful. We talked last time out about vibes, and boy, this first bit is really about the vibes of the Shire. As Gandalf and Frodo ride ride through it, we see hobbit life in full swing, tending livestock, excitement over the latest harvest, and just all the common day comings and goings of this friendly earthly folk. The Shire itself is vibrant, with greens and rivers, with hills and hollers that give a real sense of geography and topography to this completely fictional land. One of the most iconic moments of this scene is the children running up to Gandalf demanding fireworks, only to be seemingly left out in the cold. But Frodo gives him a knowing smile, Gandalf furrows his brow, and the back of his wagon erupts in pyrotechnics as the crowd goes wild. Gandalf erupts in laughter, and even the frumpy-faced hobbit cleaning his doorstep is brought to a smile. Slight digression, but I really love this moment, even if it may seem like a bit of a throwaway. We get hints of Gandalf as a bit of a trickster, but in the end, a good dude. Frodo seems to understand the wizard really well, and even that frumpy hobbit speaks to how underneath, the Shire folk are good and decent folk in these films. Just, in my opinion, fantastic storytelling. Coming back to the plot... Frodo knows Bilbo has something unexpected planned for his party, and he knows that Gandalf knows. And Gandalf knows that Frodo knows that Gandalf knows what Bilbo knows, but Gandalf keeps it secret all the same. Frodo bids Gandalf the Grey a fond farewell, and shortly thereafter the wizard arrives at Bag End, which has a sign up front saying, no admittance except on party business. Gandalf announces himself, and hug number two comes in as Gandalf hugs his very old friend Bilbo Baggins, who's not looking as old as expected. Already, Ian McKellen and Ian Holm, hey, never noticed their name, bros, are able to convey a long-storied friendship between the two from their very first moments on screen. Bilbo invites Gandalf in and offers him wine and food and all the things hobbits love, but tea will do just fine, thank you. As Bilbo fusses over refreshment for his guest, Gandalf explores Bilbo's open workspace checking out the maps, hearkening back to Bilbo's quest with the dwarves to retake the Lonely Mountain. 
The two sit down to have a chat where Bilbo ends up speaking for everyone alive in 2021 when he says he's tired, man. Like, so fucking tired of all this (laughs) shit. Butter scraped over too much bread, which couldn't be a bigger mood, and he needs a long holiday, which again, big mood. All the while, Bilbo appears to be fiddling with something small in his coat pocket, which catches Gandalf's eye. We cut next to dusk as Bilbo and Gandalf pregame the party with a little smoke session with the finest weed and south farthing as today's choice of flower. A sativa, probably, since they got a party ahead. In all honesty, we will dish on pipeweed in Lord of the Rings, but this movie dropped in my senior year of high school, which is concurrent with my first regular exposures to illicit drugs. That is to say, my friends and I hooted and hollered at the scene. They're smoking weed, just like us even if we couldn't blow a smoke ship through each other's smoke rings. (laughs) Anyway, it's party time, and it looks like feasting and fireworks are back on the menu, boys. The character work continues for our trio as we see see Bilbo telling a story about trolls to the young Shirelings while Gandalf entertains with his light, light show. But the big thing, at least for me, is this is where we meet the other hobbits of our narrative, Samwise Gamgee, Marriadic Bradneybuck, Mary for short, and Peregrine Took, or Pippin. Various tomfooleries ensue, from Frodo making Sam dance with Rosie, to Merry and Pippin stealing some fireworks leading to a mini dragon scare. But the main event, of course, is Bilbo's speech, which starts off with the very lines we open this podcast with, before announcing it's his 111th birthday. Bilbo loves showing off just how clever he is, perfectly captured by this line. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. But all that pomp and circumstance aside, Bilbo's big announcement is that he's leaving and is about to Irish goodbye the entire Shire. He wishes them adieu and specifically looks at Frodo when saying goodbye as he slips on the rink and vanishes into thin air, leaving all the small folks stunned and confused. Petition to rename the Irish goodbye to the Bilbo goodbye. We cut back to Bag End as an invisible figure opens the gate and enters his home, but Bilbo's sleight of hand, or finger perhaps, was not enough to deceive the wizard. Gandalf asks if the ring will pass to Frodo along with the rest of Bilbo's possessions, to which Bilbo says of course, all the while holding on to the ring. Gandalf presses Bilbo about it, but he is still reluctant to part with the ring. It's his own, you see. It came to him. It's his precious, he hisses out in a voice that doesn't seem his own. Gandalf has no choice but to flex on his old friend at this point, growing dark and ominous as he tells Bilbo he's not trying to rob him, he's trying to help. This smacks Bilbo back to his senses, though he still almost leaves without leaving the ring behind. Already we see the power of the ring in a very low stakes, almost comedic way that will spiral out later in the story. Bilbo does eventually drop the ring on the hearth and wishes goodbye to Gandalf, well, at least until their next meeting. Gandalf's attention returns to the ring, but when he leans in to pick it up, a great eye, lidless, wreathed in flame, flashes on the screen. Gandalf pulls back and packs another bowl to think on all that has transpired here. Frodo barges in shortly after and picks up the ring without a second's thought. Gandalf pounces on this opportunity, having Frodo put the ring in a sealed envelope with the instructions, keep it secret, keep it safe. He lets Frodo know that Bilbo has left Bag End to him, but Gandalf needs to fly at this very moment. He has to hit the books and figure out what the hell is going on. 
Gandalf leaves, and that's where we'll leave off for today's recap as we're about to enter the actual rising action of this saga. Given the context of the last episode and Galadriel's incredible prologue running directly into this, it is really, really fascinating to me that this short series of scenes in particular really do a lot of the the sort of smoothing over of the kind of roughness and, and sort of failings of a lot of our central characters. Um, for example, um, in the books, Gandalf is not just a wizard, he's this um, almost um angelic uh, being sent by the Valar, who are the closest I think you could get to gods. They're not truly gods, but they're close enough. Um, and and Gandalf's really only main purpose on on Middle Earth is to keep track of the ring um, and to to check Sauron's power. Um, and when we get to to Gandalf in uh, Fellowship of the Ring, it's quite obvious that he really has been slacking on his job quite a bit for the fact that he doesn't immediately recognize what's going on and for the fact that he doesn't really know where it's been. He has some suspicions, but he really hasn't done his due diligence. And it's not until it essentially drops into his lap that he really starts to pick up on his job. Um, in the movies, we don't get any of that context. So we just see Gandalf as someone who has you know, maybe probably heard some rumors about some sort of ring, um, but who hasn't really had any like direct connection to it who hasn't been charged with this task of um keeping the ring away from from sauron and from you know playing any sort of significant role in this ultimate battle between good and evil he's just a a guy who happens to be quite versed in the lore um and who takes it upon himself who isn't charged with it but who takes it upon himself to do something about this ring um and and so we get to ignore the fact that Gandalf has essentially fucked up on his one job for hundreds of years. Um, and we get to ignore the fact that, you know, he, you know, there's the line, Saruman's line in, in this movie that, you know, maybe Gandalf has been smoking a bit too much weed. Maybe he really <laughs> has let his guard down. And um, because we don't know that in this in these movies. So so Gandalf appears to us right off the bat as actually quite a decent guy who's really, you know, going above and beyond. Um, and I just think that's fascinating, given the sort of revisionism of Galadriel's prologue, which we discussed in in the last episode. And then you combine this with the sort of um, soft, uh, cheerful take on the Shire, um, and compare that to the sort of like bitchy undertones that you get in the books, where you know even though Tolkien has has set up the Shire to be his idealized version of Oxford, where he lived his whole life, um, in the books, you know they're all kind of sniping at each other. It's, it's very English. They're all curtain twitchers. In the movies, it's all happy and they're holding hands and they're lovely, and it re you really get the sense that there's this kind of paradise tucked away in the far north of Middle Earth, where these little people live and where you know something bad and horrible has been you know brought upon them and and they don't they don't even know about it um and i just think that that is one of the i think one of the most brilliant little changes in these movies is to give that that sort of like tabula moral tabula rasa from which to then proceed through the story 
um, instead of kind of imbuing it right off the bat with this like sense of like, oh my God, we are like already like going to collapse. Like everybody's not doing their work. Um, and oh my God, now it's in the hands of the hobbits and we already know that the hobbits are fools. We don't get that. We get a cheerful, nice family environment. We get people who are going above and beyond when they're asked to go above and beyond. And really the worst, worst in air quotes character and, and this series of scenes is Bilbo and his worst crime is just being a bit of a dick which isn't really a crime um, and it is just I think just absolutely phenomenal um, and obviously we'll get into a bit more of the the characters piece by piece but I want to sort of lay down the, the these interesting kind of moments of revisionism that you get between the books and the movies um, and also I would say that this sort of um, de-anglicizing of the Shire from in the books being like a, a a portrayal of England good and bad to to being sort of like a almost a Harry Potter vision of England and I know those are that these are you know contemporary movies but it is this sort of smoother edges there is this sense that there is good in the Shire Mr Frodo and it, it is worth fighting for you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, we we don't have a whole uh, section on the Sackville Bagginses here or anything like that. Um, I I like how you brought up how it plays off of Galadriel's prologue. Um, It kind of reinforces it because Galadriel talks about how a lot of these stories and Legend of the Ring has kind of slipped out of memory and faded into darkness. And it would be weird to say all that and then have Gandalf kind of, you know, enter stage right and be all about the ring and only thinking about the ring. Um, It's it kind of is a clean slate for as a starting point for, you know, these films, because in terms of the medium, there was no Hobbit films already. Prece- I mean, there were Hobbit films, but in terms of this specific telling of the story, um, all that stuff, it's kind of like a clean slate. And whereas Tolkien kind of had to, you know, smooth the edges on what happened in The Hobbit to kind of set up the story he was going to tell for The Lord of the Rings, um, Jackson and company could really just kind of say, we can treat this as a clean slate. And one of the choices with not having the, you know, kind of moral complexity and the sense of doom around the Shire, at least to start, is that it just kind of helps center just like, because the Shire becomes a reflection of these characters, like, you know, whether it's Frodo and Sam or Bilbo, Mary, Pippin, um, it just gives firm grounding to, you know, allow the complexity of the rest of the story to kind of spin out from there, as opposed to kind of bogging it down with history just right from the get-go, um, which I think is just, you know, really fascinating. Yeah. And I and I think this, like, this sense of, like, this is the place that the Hobbits will eventually want to return to. And obviously, we don't even have an inkling of them leaving yet, but but we know that they leave. Um, and we know that this is the place that they want to come back to. Um, it, it, that, in particular, is really fascinating as, as a creative choice for me. Um, given the context in the books of the scouring of the Shire, which is essentially um, uh, both a roast of bureaucracy and also this sort of um, way that Tolkien deals with the fact, you know, as a vet of World War One himself, of the fact that you can't really go home after you go through something horrible and traumatic. Um, and these movies, and 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 what I would say is actually quite a '90s way, um, make the case that you can go home. Um, and I think there's like a lot of like uh, 
significant um, historical context to this that like, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, this is obviously talking about Afghanistan or whatever. And this idea that like, we're going to send soldiers away and they will come back from where, you know, they'll come back from Mordor slash like Kabul um, and Mm -hmm. they'll be able to come back to, uh, you know, England or the US or Australia or New Zealand and things will be just as they left it. But there is this sort of sense that you know you need to have something to come back to that's totally unchanged by these forces these like horrible evil forces that are happening outside of like the safety zone Um, and i think that kind of decision to set up the shire as this like garden of eden um is just like really fascinating and i think is like really of the time if that makes sense (laughs) oh i think it totally does and i do think some of that about like how you, if you leave the war and come back home, you're still bringing the war with you. You know, that might be, you know, part of the thematic thrust of the scouring of the Shire. A lot of that just kind of just kind of gets roped into just the ending of Frodo's arc of just how he can't really ever go home again. Um, I think they just kind of more squarely put it on him. Um, and I think it's just a matter of pacing and that return of the king was three and a half hours before they even returned to the Shire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, th- there were some smart choices there made. That's kind of a place where maybe I would hope the extended editions would have done more. But again, I'll save my Saruman, Return of the King, extended edition thoughts for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And last episode, you know, we discussed the entire prologue, which was everything we needed to know before we met our main protagonists. Um, and then instead of a Middle Earth view, now we zoom in on the Shire with a focus on Frodo Baggins, Bilbo Baggins, and Gandalf the Grey. We'll get to Sam and the rest shortly. Frodo's journey is about to begin. His path lies ahead. So we will get into him as we kind of go along with this podcast. Gandalf has one, one foot in previous story, one and a half feet in this story. But obviously he played a large part in the Hobbit events, which precedes the events of this story. Bilbo, however, his song has basically been sung. The old elf friend still has a few pages left to write, which ends up being some nice world-building and relationship work with his nephew Frodo in in these movies. Bilbo stands in for the story already told, the road already traveled. So much about Lord of the Rings is about the perpetuity of story, of journey, of the road. Even with Bilbo's days numbered, the story continues, the road stretches on, whether it's the story of the ring or the road, Frodo takes or the fate of the Shire. The stories, you know, the ones that really matter, come back to us. Like the ring, it's a giant circle with no beginning and no end. Shout out to poor Quinton once again for opening my eyes to this theme. This opening scene shows Bilbo working on his book There and Back Again, which he'll eventually hand off to Frodo, who in turn will pass it down to Sam. It's something eternal, perhaps not so different than how we feel about the books and films that we are talking about here. We'll do some background on Bilbo. We'll gloss over the finer finer details of his journey with the dwarves to the Lonely Mountain, partially because it's not wholly relevant, and also because, hell, we may end up covering those Hobbit films out of posterity, though I imagine those won't be received with the same glowing admiration that we will have for these movies. Bilbo Baggins was played by Ian Holm in the Lord of the Rings films, and you may also know he was played by Martin Freeman in the Hobbit films. Um, We'll give some dates here. Um, I'm not going to give dates for every character, and the dates don't really matter, but, you know, it's just kind of fun. Bilbo was born on September 2nd in 2890 of the Third Age, 
or 1290 um, by the Shire Reckoning calendar. Emily, what is the Shire Reckoning? That is a brilliant question. And the answer is it was uh, old Johnny Tokes wanting to do something slightly unique from the calendar that we as audiences are aware of without having to give exactly the same calendar, even though in the books we do actually use the the modern Western calendar. Um, Tolkien basically created a 12-month, 30-day calendar for use in the Shire or it, you know, by the Hobbits um, as a way of sort of building out this distinction. Um, canonically, it's much closer to the original King's Reckoning, which is the calendar used by the kings of Gondor and briefly Arnor before... Um, before Irendil went off and, um, or sorry, Irner, uh, don't roast me, Solm fans, uh, <laughs> went off to fight the Witch King and died. Um, after that, it turned into the Steward's Reckoning, which is where you get the 3,000 from um, when you hear the Third Age. Um, but the Shire Reckoning is basically the Hobbit's calendar. The Hobbits have it slightly different um, because they're Hobbits and they always have to have it different. And Tolkien did all of this because... Because... Honestly, God knows why, because he was bored, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, some of it might just be like, oh, if they have their own calendar, that's just like, it helps like world build some culture, I guess, out of that. Um, and it just, you know, it, again, I don't have any great reasonings for it. Um, it definitely makes it just a little bit more confusing when doing research. Not that confusing, but it just like everything comes in terms of dates in pairs because of it. Moving on, Bilbo's home is Bag End, which is in Hobbiton of the Shire. Uh, we, I don't think we'll get into the geography of the Shire that much for the film's sake, but if you look at like the maps uh, that precede the text, you will see that like the Shire specifically has maps broke down in terms of how it, uh, you know, how it lays out. It, it's a map. It does what maps do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think one interesting element of, of the Shire's placement um, that I actually think they get really, really well in the um, in the movies, and, and we'll come back to this in a second, obviously, but is, is the fact that they are this isolated island surrounded by terror and, and that it is significant that these guys really don't know what's going on because um, directly to the north and east of them, they have the realm of the Witch King of Angmar and he is obviously the big, big bad. Um, to the south and east of them, they have um, the Enid Waith and Dunland and uh, you know the the sort of bad guys that we see Saruman uh, recruit in two towers. Um, directly to the east of them, they have the mess that is um, Moria and uh, Rovanian and there is a lot of shit going on around them and it's constantly moving its way to the West because in, in Tolkien's sort of moral universe, the West is <laughs> the best. The West is where the elves live and the Valar live. Um, and and all of this horrible stuff is enclosing in around them and the hobbits are like, yeah, we don't know and we don't care, which is a mood. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, we can talk a little bit about Bilbo's personality. I wrote down here that he's friendly and mirthful, but also he's a little bit bitter and a little bit of a trickster of his own sake, or he likes to kind of punk uh, his fellow hobbits a little bit. Um, punk is a term derived from Ashton Kutcher's hit TV show. I don't know if that's a thing people <laughs> still say. Um, but Bilbo also enjoys his drink and smoke, as we see um, in these uh, opening scenes. Um, and he's half took and half Baggins. And I point that out because the Tooks are historically maybe the more adventuresome hobbits of the bunch. Not that they're like super adventuresome, but 
whatever great stories they may have about battles or like leaving the Shire, um, a lot of those can be traced to the Took family lineage. Um, Peregrine Took or Pippin is the Took we'll meet in the story as well. Um, and we're contrasting that with the Baggins aside, which are supposedly more homebodies um, and not as adventurous, um, kind of as, you know, kind of the base uh, characterization of all hobbits kind of are in these movies is that they're all kind of homebodies um, who like to just kind of be at home and stick to their own and not really think about the world at large. And in a way, that's why Frodo is kind of considered weird is because he is one of the few hobbits who does think a lot about the outside world, even if he's never been there prior to the story. And I guess the only other thing about uh, Bilbo is the fact that he's Pro, he's easily the world's most famous hobbit just for the fact that he's actually left and done adventures and ingratiated himself with the leaders of elves and the leaders of dwarves. Um, so like he's at least somewhat known amongst other cultures in other parts of the world, which really can't be said uh, for any of the other, uh, you know, hobbits that we've met so far. And then, you know, he's the ring bearer, you know, in terms of uh, plot functionality at the start of the series and kind of the rising action. um, The real conflict really kind of begins when he leaves the ring for Frodo at the end of the scene we just recapped. Yeah. And And I think one of the other like really significant roles that he plays in this is he's the archivist of the, these stories. Um, And I think the, the films do just this really phenomenal job of, of telegraphing that right from the off, because you do get the sense that, that, it is Bilbo's responsibility to be the one who takes this story forward, um, at least in 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 the sake of preserving it for posterity. Um, and so he has this dual role. He's kind of like, um, well, actually, quite, kind of like quite a few of the other like men characters that as in capital M of the race of men characters that we come upon later, but he is this almost like scholar warrior because he does this dual purpose of being the one who goes out and makes his way in the world. And then who also writes a history book about it. Yeah. And speaking of that book, uh, there and back again, which is kind of the story that we've learned through the Hobbit books, movies, however books more or less. Um, and, you know, part of the scene is Gandalf coming into Bag End and he can start, he's like kind of rummaging around uh, Bilbo's open workspace. And, you know, he sees maps and scrolls, um, you know, kind of heralding back to that mission. He sees a map of Erebor and the Lonely Mountain. Um, there's a little red stenciling of smog in there, um, which, you know, kind of when Frodo and Gandalf are talking, they kind of obliquely reference as the incident with the dragon, you know, kind of like it was like no big deal or like, you know, kind of a throwaway moment as opposed to like this big, you know, encounter between the smallest of creatures with like the most daunting and evil of creatures that exists out there. Um, and obviously, a lot of the events of The Hobbit are going to end up uh, playing a role in the story of the Lord of the Rings that we're about to see. On that journey with the dwarves, he obtained Sting, which is his elven sword. Um, he obtained uh, a male of Mithril, or that shiny shirt, as the people in Mordor like to call it. Um, and then he obviously, he earned the name Elf Friend, but more importantly, it's like he has esteem with amongst the elves. Like they look at him very highly because of his journeys. Um, and, you know, including that archivist work, which he's helped doing, um, because the recorded history of hobbits is not something that's really known to the outside world. So, um, he really bears a heavy burden there. Um, 
And then obviously he helped the dwarves reclaim Erebor. And we will see when we get to the Council of Elrond and the formation of the Fellowship that, you know, what the dwarf who's part of the Fellowship is the son of uh, one of the dwarves that uh, Bilbo went uh, to the Lonely Mountain with. So there's kind of a parallel between Bilbo and Frodo there, um, along with uh, Gimli, uh, who I believe is the son of Glowin, uh, who traveled with Bilbo 60 years-ish ago or thereabout. Yeah, and I think this is one of the underrated elements of Bilbo's character is that when Bilbo gets to Rivendell and, and when the Council of Elrond convenes and the Fellowship itself is is you know is wrought from these group of people that have convened, um, Bilbo has tremendous grandpa energy over almost every single person who's in the Fellowship because he knows um, of Legolas at least uh, sort of obliquely through his encounters with Legolas's father Thranduil who's the king of the woodland realm and he knows Gloin because he went on this massive adventure with Gloin and so he probably knows knows of or knew young Gimli and he knows all of the hobbits obviously and he has this long relationship with um, Gandalf, and he gets to Rivendell in enough time to make quite good friends with Aragorn. Um, the only member of the Fellowship that um, Bilbo can't really exert his like old man powers over is is literally Boromir, um, and that's mostly a proximity thing. Um, so Bilbo really is this like patriarch of the story, in 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 more ways than one. Yeah, no, he really does hang over it. Um, and it's really cool just from a filmmaking aspect that we get hints of uh, what, you know, that there was this big epic story that totally preceded the story we're about to see. And they're able to give us enough info to, you know, kind of peak interest without actually, you know, having to give us the, you know, blow by blow. This is what happened to Bilbo before the story started, um, because I... I am someone who never had to read The Hobbit like as part of school or growing up. I read it well after the Lord of the Rings films came out. Um, so I knew that a book called The Hobbit existed. Um, and I know that Bilbo was the character of that. But I really didn't know anything else about that. I didn't know about The Lonely Mountain or Smog or any of that stuff when I sat down and watched these films the first time. Um, so to get like you know, a good dose of that just so I kind of have backing as it would help inform Bilbo and Gandalf's characters with, once again, not bogging us down into, like, a bunch of world-building and lore up front that can be, you know, death to a fantasy story if it's not done well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and pivoting from there, um, we went a little bit longer on Bilbo just because, again, this is, like, the end of his story and he doesn't factor as much into the main plot of this one. Um, but we do want to go through all the other character intru um, introductions, but we'll definitely talk about more of these people um, as we continue through this podcast. Um, the first of course is Gandalf the gray played by Ian McKellen, who is just an absolute rock in the cast um, because a lot of, you know, the world building, a lot of the more magical stuff and the lore is told through Gandalf as well. And, um, the thing that I really like to highlight from these scenes is just his relationship with Bilbo and his relationship with Frodo. Um, there's already kind of a lived-in sense to those friendships, and there's a real rapport there um, where you can tell, okay, this family and this wizard have a special relationship. And it seems very, you know, what's it called? Grandfatherly or, you know, the elder sage. And definitely in the traditional hero's journey sense, he is supposed to be kind of like that wizard mentor figure to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, here in this opening 
seen with the Shire, um, Gandalf is mostly fun in games and laughs. But when he does need to get serious, he does get serious. You know, that moment when he grows dark and ominous, you know, telling Bilbo he's not trying to rob him is one that could, should stick out to the audience being like, oh, there's a lot more to this guy than, you know, we had originally thought. Yeah. And, and I think it's really interesting how they play. Um, well, I, I would say, actually, it's not really necessarily a creative choice on behalf of either the script or the director i actually think a huge amount of gandalf's character is sold by the sheer charisma of ian mckellen Um, and this is where i'm just gonna like introduce my absolutely insane and deeply provocative take which is that i think gandalf is a huge asshole Um, and i think he's really um not likable um in the books and if you you talk about him on paper i think he's like a, a really like cruel and just like mean character and a not very interesting person to like have to deal with. Um, but in these movies, he gets this massive redemption, at least in my eyes, because Ian McKellen is just constantly operating at, you know, a hundred percent the whole way through and really sells, I think, a lot of the things that show up as quite questionable about Gandalf on paper. Um, he really makes, you know, he he imbues Gandalf with this like this grandfatherly element even though ian mckellen was quite young when he he did this shockingly young um him and vigo martensen um are now the same age well vigo martensen is now the age that ian mckellen was when they were filming mm-hmm. fellowship which is a a mind <laughs> fuck there um but but gandalf on paper is actually like a, a huge asshole um and ian mckellen really just gets rid of all of that really cuts through a lot of it and sells gandalf as um this just really lovable person that you'd always want to have around um, and i will continue to come back to my uh crusade of gandalf socks um throughout uh because there are so many examples of it i'm totally right but you know it's just like impossible literally impossible to look past like the wall of charisma that is ian mckellen yeah and kind of going back to what you were saying earlier when we started our analysis about how you know Gandalf's like an angel who was sent here to kind of you know watch over the ring and protect against Sauron and how a lot of that was axed uh when I most recently read uh the Lord of the Rings books is like Gandalf is almost unknowable and inscrutable like he's always going off and doing shit and like the true effect and the purpose for that if you ever do find out is usually found out well after the fact um, and that isn't really the vibe there. There are definitely moments that in each movie where Gandalf like kind of fucks off to do his own thing and then comes back at the right time. But, uh, he's not that kind of unknowing presence or like, I can't know him because he's like an angel or something that's closer to God or whatever you want to call it. You know, you can be very, you know, flexible with the w- terminology with that, but it's just uh, they take away some of that unknowingness and ground it more in that grandfather sense. And again, I think that's just McKellen um, just kind of being who he is and kind of playing the beats how what would make sense for a massive film going audience um, rather than, you know, kind of the text that uh, Tolkien laid down initially. And um, I'm actually really interested t- to hear you flesh out this take as we go along about Gandalf being a villain, um, because obviously that's not the text or subtext of the movies, but I can kind of see it. <laughs> um, so yeah. I'm eager to see as we kind of plot the data points along the way to see um, how that goes. 
Well, and I think it's interesting as well, and I will keep drawing this in to lend myself legitimacy, but Ian McKellen um, has openly said a couple times in interviews that he thinks that Gandalf is a real jackass. Um, and I think that for me is interesting because um, if at least from for my reading of it, um, I think Gandalf is far more sympathetic in the books. Um, that doesn't mean I think he's sympathetic, but he's far more sympathetic mm-hmm. in the books than he is in the movies. In the movies, he's like, as written, he is enormously crueler i would say and makes a lot of choices that are just absolutely fucking batshit um but ian mckellen is just like reading this obviously and being like i'm going to rehabilitate this man and i'm going to make him the most beloved wizard of all time and he just succeeds he just knocks it out of the park for every single second he's on screen yeah take that fucking dumbledore yeah word (laughs) (laughs) um So we'll move on to uh, the four main hobbits of the story we're about to tell. And again, a lot of this we'll kind of just talk more about um, as we go along, as they take center stage in the narrative. Uh, We meet Frodo, uh, Elijah Wood, and we already get the sense that he's uh, eager and curious. He seems to be into the outside world more so than other hobbits. Um, He's into his books. He loves reading. He loves pouring over maps. Um, So a lot of Bilbo in him. Uh, but you know, that's just kind of, you know, how we meet him and like the burden that's going to be thrust upon him, um, is basically the story of these movies. Uh, I don't have much else to add here. Is there anything you wanted to add on Frodo, uh, to start off? Yeah, well, I think one of the the really interesting and I think actually quite good choices that this movie makes is, um, so Frodo in the books is like fifth. Uh, so he's like, hang on, he's like 33 when the very first bit of action kicks off, and then he's 50 when the Fellowship sets out from Rivendell. So he's quite an old guy, and obviously there you have to make um, accommodations for the fact that like in canon, uh, the Hobbits come of age slightly different, and, and their like sense of aging is uh, different, very different to ours. Like You don't come of age as a hobbit until you're 33. Don't think too hard about like the Jesus connection there. Um, but um, you know, Frodo is very much like an older character in the books. And in the movies, brilliantly, he's this young, spry, like like not yet world weary figure. And I think like Elijah Wood really plays him with this like wide eye, bushy tail brightness and like joy radiating from him in the first couple of scenes. That is just incredible because it makes watching him just get absolutely chewed up and spit out and broken down by the world that much more compelling. Yeah, it truly is. You know, it's one of those performances, I'd say, um, especially Frodo and Sam, like a lot of the success of these movies kind of hinge on their performance um, and how they sell it. And by having Frodo kind of escalate that like puppy dogs ness that you kind of just described um, helps play up the parts later on when he's going to, you know, swing the pendulum all the way in the opposite way. Um, And Elijah Wood seems like a pretty base dude uh, based on everything I've seen, too. He seems (laughs) like a a a solid man. Uh, so I just wanted to add that. And then uh, you can talk about Frodo without talking about Samwise, um, played by Sa- Sean Astin. He only really gets a really beef, uh, beef, brief introduction here because um, we see him at the party. We see him, you know, kind of wanting to dance with Rosie, but he's kind of drinking to kind of build up that courage. And then Frodo just kind of throws him at Rosie. Um, and that's basically it for Sam. And, you know, a lot of people, myself perhaps included, kind of consider Sam to be the hero of this story, you know, the Lord of the Rings saga in a way. Um, and he's definitely the character that's going to be so fun to watch come into his own, um, you know, over the course of these next three movies. Um, but he really, you know, we'll talk about him a lot more um, 
the next episode when he's not dropping no eaves, sir. Um, but it, I do like that he does get an introduction as part of the ensemble very early on here. Yeah, and I think like there are two really significant um, changes for me um, between the books and the movies that I like. I don't really know if I have a, like a moral judgment or like a critical judgment on them. I just think they're like really interesting. And one is, of course, like the Sam's introduction is based entirely on this like thought process of he is absolutely a heterosexual like he likes girls this movie is screaming at us over and over and over for like the first 10 seconds we see him is he likes girls he likes girls do not forget that as we go through this incredibly homoerotic journey for the next nine hours of our lives do not forget that he likes girls and i just think that is really funny and kind of cute and like kind of shows a little bit of the anxiety like underlying a lot of um a lot of the emotion I would say in these movies that that at points gets subverted, but at points really doesn't. Um, and then I think the other thing is um, the fact that both um, Frodo and Sam are played by Americans um, is actually when, when all of the other hobbits are um, either English as Don Monahan is um, or uh, Scottish as uh, Billy Boyd is um, the, the, the sort of American element. And even though they are kind of both attempting very valiantly to do some sort of accent, lends this air of um taking the strained class relations out of their of their personal relationship that exists very obviously in the books um in the books there is a lot of this sort of emphasis on the fact that sam is frodo's gardener and that there is this sort of like um I don't want to call it like master servant relationship, but like it, it kind of is that like there is definitely a sense that there is like a, an enormous gap in like power um, and esteem and class going on in the books. And you have multiple characters be like, your boss is smarter and cleverer than you, Sam, please stop talking. Although they don't say please. Um, and, and by having Americans who like are by and large seen as like, who, who are by and large a less class conscious culture generally, um, but who are also seen to be a less class conscious culture, you get to kind of take out some of that potential for like uh, discomfort that comes with this more obvious, more old world relationship between these two characters. And so they kind of start on even footing at the start of these movies, whereas in the books, they're just not, and you're never really meant to think they are. And I think that really, in the movies, helps to build up their relationship in, in a, like, a really pretty way. Yeah, and, you know, Western cinema flattening uh, cl <laughs> class analysis in its film, <laughs> I, it, that's a thing unheard of. Um, but, no, I think that really works. And when you, when they really talk about that relationship in the movies, it's more just like Sam's his gardener or his bodyguard or, you know, gardener bodyguard you know um they don't they don't really say that master servant specifically even though i think there are a couple times where you might say master frodo uh in the script um they don't highlight it and it's all over the text um he's always kind of thinking about like this is what i owe this man in a way um not man but hobbit uh so it it, it is very uh very interesting but also very of a piece with uh I wouldn't call it Hollywood cinema, but just Western cinema generally to uh, flatten class uh, for the sake of storytelling. Um, but I had never put together that goes a lot hand in hand with the casting of two American actors. And I think it's also like it kind of is a bit like the, you know, the the late 90s, the, again, the Francis Fukuyama end of history, like 
we've either got Clinton in office in the US or Blair in the UK, and we 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 have evolved past the need for class apparently, um, and and so we don't need to talk about class and we don't really need to think about it except in the sense that it's like quite an uncouth topic to bring up and you don't really do at the dinner table or when you're wanting to like watch something for entertainment, um, and so it is interesting that they get rid of it because I think. Um, Although I'm not certain, but I suspect that you probably wouldn't have been able to get away with omitting it like that if you were filming it, say, in the 1970s or 1980s. Uh, Moving on, uh, the last two hobbits that we meet that are relevant to our narrative are Merry and Pippin, played by Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd. For the sake of the films, they are at times, especially in these opening scenes, relegated to comedic relief. Um, I think you definitely see them come into their own more in the last act of fellowship and definitely in more so in the two towers and later return of the king um pippin specifically gets kind of highlighted as the foolish one even though he might be considered you know perhaps one of the more courageous ones based on uh the text that they're drawing from um but you know we'll get into them more in later episodes i'm sure uh shortcut to mushrooms when they join frodo and sam on the journey uh, to Rivendale will be when we really start seeing their characters come forward. But kind of in these opening scenes, we kind of see that they're a little bit goofballs. Um, I, I think I've used the word trickster to describe every character, so I got to stop <laughs> saying that again. Um, but like, the, you know, when you're stealing fireworks from this all powerful wizard, um, you know, you definitely have some kind of um, intestinal fortitude, I will say, um, to you, um, that kind of belies how they're kind of foolish, but also kind of brave at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the, you know, and not just being, um, comedic relief, but I think, um, Pippin in particular, and this isn't just because like Billy Boyd, hometown hero or whatever. Um, but like, I think Pippin represents, um, not necessarily an audience stand-in, but, how Pippin feels in any given scene is how we as the audience should really be feeling. Um, I think like he is kind of this emotional touchstone for the films um, in a way I think basically no other character is like, you really don't need to do a lot of like deep thinking or deep like introspection to really get why Pippin is feeling the way that he feels or to like really have the sense that in, if we're honest with ourselves, like we would all kind of be Pippin in every situation that he's in like he's nervous at all the right times he cries at all the right times he's kind of laughing through the pain <laughs> at all the right times um and he really just does sort of form this um this this emotional touchstone for for the films really really overtly yeah and this has nothing to do with anything but i i still occasionally put on his the song that he did for the last hobbit movie i think the last goodbye or something like that um, it's a very touching song, and the music video is kind of cut to all sorts of behind-the-scenes footage from The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and if you just feel like crying, and, you know, The, the Lord of the Rings movies will help you do that anyways, um, <laughs> but you can find that music video, and it's really uh, it's really touching, and he has a great little Scottish voice, bo- voice um, so to speak. And uh, the last thing I want to talk about in this analysis set it, uh, section is the fact of setting the Shire, which we've already talked very much in depth about, um, because not only is it where, you know, our main protagonists come from, but it also is kind of a stand in for um, the fate of the world and everything that's green and good um, to exist. And we see that very literally because, you know, we see Frodo in a lush field um, sitting under trees. 
Um, we see it's very agriculture based, very much one with the earth. Um, and you know, the movies don't really go into, um, the different types of hobbits because there's like Harfoots and Stutes. Um, I'm, you know, blanking on the terminology, but we do get a sense of that very type a little bit just through we see, you know, hobbit houses that are built above ground versus hobbits that live in holes in the ground. Um, so we start, we see that they aren't all just uniform, um, but, you know, they kind of use the visual cues and the tools of filmmaking to, uh, you know, kind of portray that. And then most of all, the most important thing, if you take nothing else away from this entire set of scenes is how cool it is to smoke weed. It's super cool <laughs> that the hobbits smoke weed and we should all be more like the hobbits. And weed, you know, actually has even more uh, prominence in the uh, text because, you know, where who gets weed, where it's grown, where it makes its way to Middle Earth and back again, kind of feeds into some of the plot stuff with Saruman that the movies kind of gloss over. But, um, you know, they're cool because they smoke. And I think we should always center that. Right, right. Absolutely. And it like, it really does make them I think this is one of these things where like, the the change from like, so 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 pipeweed is called pipeweed um because Tolkien didn't like the name tobacco um and it is just the most ridiculous like linguist little bitchiness like taste of bitchiness that I've ever heard of in my life but he goes pipeweed because tobacco is a, an ugly word um Peter Jackson absolutely correctly is like no one in their right minds is going to hear the word weed in the year of our lord 1997 or whenever it is that he's writing these and think of tobacco they're gonna think of pot um and that choice to to just really lean into that switch is just one of the 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 sort of like greatest little like um changes in world building i think you could get because obviously it implies that you know gandalf is stoned off his ass the whole way through this and um, but it also kind of again i'm coming back to this but like it de-anglicizes the shire um it takes it from stuffy like curtain twitching England of the 1940s and 50s and turns it into like again Garden of Eden utopia these are people who like really know how to like either party or just like relax and um it it really does I think kind of go back on um a lot of sort of Tolkien's ideological underpinnings but in a way that is I think far more palatable for those of us who do not think that semi-feudal England is the ideal yeah. So and so, I think one of the the sort of like big um, important parts or, or roles that the Shire takes up in in um, the Lord of the Rings books that I think it maybe doesn't necessarily do in in the films is that um, it serves as the the sort of foundation of Tolkien's uh, semi aborted desire to build an English national mythos for uh, this sort of half country half not of England. Um and for um for listeners who who don't necessarily understand why Eng- why England is like that. Um England is part of uh the United Kingdom, which is a uh state that comprises um England, Wales, Scotland, and quite illegitimately uh, Northern Ireland, um, and uh, has included all of those states in in in, in various states of being since like seventeen oh seven slash like early eighteen hundreds. I'm gonna get roasted for this um, for not being super accurate on it. But England um, never really developed um, as a nation in the same way that other nations 
worldwide did, um, or maybe not necessarily worldwide, but like in the Anglosphere and in and in Western Europe. Um, so like the the idea of the French nation obviously develops a little bit during the French Revolution, but then it picks up more during 1848. The same uh, time frame works for um, Italy and the reunification, and for Germany, and um, for for actually for the United States in a lot of ways. Because if you look at what's going on around the mid 1800s in in the U.S., you're really starting to get like the the contours of what like the American nation is. Um, England never really has that because it's part of this multinational state um, and has sort of given up its national identity for the sake of preserving this like conglomerate. Um, and by the time Tolkien gets to writing in, um, well, he first starts writing sort of 1917-ish, but when he gets to writing in earnest in the 1940s and 50s, 1940s really, um, there is this sense of a lack of uh, like cultural cohesion for an English nation. Um, and Raymond Williams writes a lot about this, this like gap and and Tom Nairn, who I recommend everybody reads, writes about this fact that like England as England doesn't really have anything. It has Britain, which is like the Arthurian legends, but those are really Welsh and Scottish and, and Irish. Um, England doesn't really have jack shit, to be honest. And, and Tolkien takes this and really runs with it and is like, England needs a national myth to establish itself. And so he tries to do that through Lord of the Rings and and all of the various cultures that show up are meant to kind of represent facets of England at points. Um, but this is never really clearer than in the Shire, which he sets up to be like Oxford, which is where he lived and, and worked his whole life. Um, and it really, if you've ever been to Oxford, it really does feel like that. Um, although I would argue after having just spent a year in Cambridge, Cambridge is probably a bit closer to the Shire. Um, but he uses the, the the Shire as this sort of way of pointing out to his audience, which was initially meant to be quite small and then obviously became a global audience, um, what England was like before the wars hit and before it was destroyed by two world wars. Um, and, you know, as he's sort of having these first thoughts of like the elves, really, um, when he's in the trenches in World War One, and then when he's writing Lord of the Rings in in the sort of worst parts of World War Two, he's really hearkening back to this idealized, um, uh, poetic vision of England. You know, the England of the song Jerusalem, Blake's England, um, and 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 sort of saying, remember that this is what we had once before the sort of corruption of of war and violence, you know, got into our got under our skin. Um, and so it is interesting that you get to the films and there is this sort of de-anglicization of it. You know, obviously they all have the English accents, but that has kind of become a worldwide neutral accent in, in some ways um, because there isn't really this like interest in giving England its own King Arthur from Peter Jackson. Like he's not English. He doesn't care. Um, and, and so I think that is kind of a really interesting change in, in how the Shire functions um, the whole way through uh, the movies is it just doesn't have this political edge to it that, that Tolkien wanted. Um, and I would say as, as someone who lives in Scotland and works for uh, Scottish independence, uh, it is a damn good thing that Peter Jackson didn't give them that because uh, they don't deserve it. <laughs> uh, thank you. I, I have nothing to add to that because I cannot say I am very versed in those politics, but that that's fantastic. I didn't even, yeah, something I had never even considered. We'll jump now to our cine, cinematography and score analysis. 
And the first thing I want to uh, point out is the height difference in these characters, which is, you know, representative of height different between the various races. Um, the uh, hobbits are tend to be, you know, very small, anywhere from two to four feet, I think, technically. And uh, you kind of get a sense of that when Frodo jumps into Gandalf's arms when he first rides into the Shire. But Gandalf is seated, so you... You get a sense of it, but it might not hit you in the face right then and there. But then once Gandalf arrives at Bag End, he immediately starts bumping into archways, you know, bumping into chandeliers. Um, you, you really get a sense of how um, there's, you know, just a difference in height between the hobbits and the rest of the people. And obviously with wizards and man and everything else that we'll see more thoroughly uh, when we get to, say, the Council of Alrond and the forming of the Fellowship. But... I just like this part because we talked about scope and scale in the prologue, especially as it related to the big battle scene. But here we get a sense of scope and scale just between characters using height. Um, we see the hobbits, you know, who are kind of smaller and it kind of maybe is, you know, stands in or is a symbolism for the fact that they kind of have a smaller worldview overall. Their thoughts don't, you know, extend much beyond the Shire itself. Whereas Gandalf, you know, as you know, the tallest character of these, his view on the events of Middle Earth tend to be all encompassing, both in terms of geography and in time, because he has, you know, lived for thousands of years. Um, don't quote me on that. I know it's just a really long time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then, you know, the men we see like Aragorn and Boromir, they're definitely taller and they have a bigger kind of purview on the plot in terms of the kingdoms of men, which is generally more expansive than um, the Shire or the land of the Hobbit. So um, it really does a nice job of kind of using those visual cues and just something as simple as height as a way to kind of introduce scope and scale in their own kind of way, separate from things like battles and uh, sweeping, you know, landscapes and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think this is one of these these moments where, like, and I don't know what, like, the crack will be with Ayatsi when this uh, episode airs, but um, it, it really speaks to, like, the, the sort of much better world for, like, the craft of films um, when you operate in an industry that is... Um, if if not entirely unionized itself is dominated by uh unions putting certain expectations on how uh work is to be done and how the 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 sort of craftsmen behind work are to be treated um because i think like you do get these absolutely incredible um uh, workarounds for this problem of how do you make someone look three foot tall when the actors are well actually I guess all of the Hobbit actors are actually quite short but they could be you know six foot tall mm -hmm. you know uh, John Reese Davis who who plays Gimli who's not much taller than the Hobbits is is himself very very tall I think he's well over six foot and um, how do you solve that that problem on screen and and I think we all kind of have to be grateful that the answer was we're going to use practical effects we're going to use practical magic to figure this out and we're going to really put a lot of time and thought into the craft of making this magic appear real um, or making this magic real is actually probably more accurate um, and and I think now and you know this isn't me just being like crotchety old grandmother like in my day we did this but like I, you know nowadays I don't think we would get that um, emphasis on and that that sort of like willingness to use practical effects and to spend that much time thinking about how to make these practical effects work because it would just be a straight shot to uh, computer graphics and it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with computer graphics there certainly isn't but I think the the conditions under which um, 
uh, computer graphics are given like precedence means that the quality of the craftsmanship isn't always as good as it really ought to be, and that it's used when when you know as we see in in these films, the practical effects do actually work better for 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 the purpose. Yeah, for sure, and there's definitely just a sense of dexterity and like occupying physical space that you get from practical effects that you can recreate through uh special effects and you know the lord of the rings films are you know chock full of special effects throughout um but it's really the blend of the two and really that perfect synthesis that it never loses its own aesthetic because it gives way to too much special effects or relying on it too much um, cause I'm sure they can do stuff. I mean, they did a pretty good job of shrinking down Steve Rogers, say in the first Captain America movie. Um, and you know, but you know, more often than not, it's just going to be kind of soupy CGI is usually where things kind of go these days. Um, and using those practical effects or tricks of the camera, um, you know, there's all sorts of little ways you can pull off these effects without, um, a computer if you kind of really know what you're doing. So, um, I think it really speaks to that thing we were talking about last time out about how it's the perfect blend of, uh, the practical effects with the special effects to create a real sense of, you know, height and length or whatever you have you with these films yeah and like the sense of like the like it being a true world because there's this like really incredible anecdote about the the star wars original trilogy and about how like um the the set designers and the set construction team that were involved in building out the sets for um a new hope which was then just star wars um built far more of a set than they needed to um they they built something ridiculous i'm gonna say it's like 270 degrees of a set it's probably like 180 degrees of a set um when really they only needed like 45 because it gave the film this sense that you could turn the camera all the way around taking the camera off of the characters and you would still see the complete world and around every corner you get the sense that there's something still there and that there's something going on um in a way that you know that that flatness that exists with i think the over-reliance on green screens and the over-reliance on like the soupy as you said cgi and like choosing to actually make bag end a real place and choosing to actually use tables um that that sit at the perfect angle so that gandalf looks massive and bilbo looks tiny and really does help to do do that same thing that that same sort of death star um uh rebel space fleet effect of you know it does feel like there's something around the corner um that you could just kind of you know you know apologize to bilbo and gandalf and be like sorry lads i'll be back in three seconds i'm gonna go look in your larder and there would be something in the larder yeah and a uh, quick digression just to play off something you mentioned about how helpful it is to have a unionized or at least mostly unionized you know force behind a lot of the craft work here. Um, just want to throw out some solidarity for the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees um, who are, you know, fighting for uh, better conditions and better, um, you know, compensation, living wage, all that stuff um, in the film and theater industry and, you know, and the TV industry, sorry. Uh, so just, you know, solidarity to them. We support uh, unionized workforces on this podcast. Um, that's one of the few places I'm confident in speaking for Emily, um, yeah. because yeah, it, it, it only improve if those people are taken care of, it will only improve the stuff that will, uh, eventually be produced and come out. But what comes first is definitely their well-being before, you know, whatever the next Marvel movie or whatever they're working on is. And plus um, more unions makes Jeff Bezos mad. <laughs> yes. Which is always the goal. Um, so next I wanted to talk about just kind of 
the framing of headshots um, and even hands, um, these can kind of go together. But um, one of the like trademark, you know, shots of Lord of the Rings is you often get these um, picture or uh, shots like straight on with a character's face where they're either looking right at the camera or just off center. Um, but their head or their face takes up, you know, almost two thirds of the entire screen. And it just it's very different because a lot of times, you know, we associate uh looking at the camera as um, not, you know, part of the traditional film language of telling, you know, dramatic stories. Um, I'm going to lift a term from uh, adult entertainment uh, filmmaking. Uh, it's called spiking the camera when an actor or actress unintentionally looks at the camera when they shouldn't. Um, it's, you know, in that world, it supposedly breaks the suspension of disbelief as much as that might matter to the person viewing it. Um, but, you know, Lord of the Rings is just full of shots, just like face and eyes, just like center stage with it. And I really just wanted to highlight it now because we get a taste of it here with, um, you know, Frodo and Gandalf a little bit. But uh, when we get to the end of this film uh, and, you know, Frodo's kind of having his, you know, thoughts before he, you know, gets into that boat and crosses over to Emun Mil, um, there's a really great dissolve functionality that only really works because of the way that previously in this film they shut up these kind of headshots where the character's face takes up such a big part of the screen real estate um and then then kind of uh pivoting from there is also just there's a lot of shots of hands of fingers which you know for lack of anything else is just there to help emphasize the ring itself because that's you know what would be holding the ring or wearing the ring um and it really kind of boils down to you know yeah, I, I mean, I really don't have much else to add now, but I have a feeling this is going to be a theory I work on as we work through these uh, podcast episodes about how much about the Lord of the Rings is about the things we carry, you know, whether it's trauma, burden, our friends. Um, and, you know, by having a focus on the hands of people picking things up or playing with things in their pocket, it kind of just helps reinforce that. Yeah, and I think this is also one of these places where... Um, for this like really incredible creative choice um it it immediately presented a whole bunch of like technical problems for them um not least of which is is the the ring itself and um i'm sure we will talk about this loads when we get to the karis gladron scene um much later um in, in the film but but you know they made this call to really highlight these two elements of of each actor's you know bodies and it meant that they had to really change how they set their their scenes and how they built their props and did their costumes and you know they still went ahead with it anyways and i just think that is like uh mm, brilliant love it yeah um, I, I'll be curious to see just exactly how they get all that dirt into those fingernails for all those oh, shots. God. Oh God! Uh, but that's that's a good spot to hop over to talking about the ring itself, which we see um, very briefly near the end of this scene. Um, we see it's been hidden in Bilbo's pocket for a lot of the uh, scenes we covered today. But then when we actually do see it, when Bilbo takes it out, it often is centered on the screen because it helps bring it to life as a character. It's basically a stand-in for the main antagonist of the story um, in Sauron. And, you know, one thing that they cleverly do with the camera work with the ring is um, 
they often use upshots, which usually denote power or like some kind of power dynamic between what's, you know, kind of at the lower angle and what's kind of being portrayed with the higher upshot angle. Um, for example, when Bilbo's doing his after all, why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? Um, we see the camera looking up at Bilbo. Um, and then again, when uh, the ring is on the floor and Gandalf's picking it up, you, we actually get a shot that's almost straight from the ring's point of view, looking up at Gandalf. And the power, I think, that, you know, this kind of camera angle is trying to portray is the power that the ring could wield um, through these other characters. You know, when it's the shot of Bilbo, it's kind of at an angle, um, which kind of means, you know, through Bilbo, the ring can only exert, you know, a certain amount of power because hobbits aren't naturally magical or have any kind of power. Whereas when we um, when the ring is looking just straight up at Gandalf, that's like the most powerful force or one of the most powerful people that the ring could consider binding itself to um, is this great wizard who lives for a millennia um, and, you know, can make light and shadow kind of, you know, bend to his whim. So I really just like how they use the most basic of filmmaking, you know, the upshot um, as a way to help, um, you know, center the ring and also center kind of the ring's point of view in terms of, ooh, this guy, I really hope he picks it up because he'd be powerful. And when Gandalf does, you know, kind of lean in and try to grab the ring, that's when we get our first glimpse of the Eye of Sauron. Um, only for a second, and we'll see it more once we get to Bree, but we see that, you know, almost iconic at this point, uh, black... I guess I don't know my eye terminology, but the black streak in the middle uh, surrounded by flame. And it's, you know, it's a choice that they made for these films to give some kind of visual indicator for Sauron besides the ring. Uh, but I like how it's just flashed on the screen for the briefest of seconds here. Yeah. And I think this is one of these like really um, sort of incredible elements of these movies that, that, that you are like absolutely correctly pointing out, which is that they really do go back to like the basics of film theory to convey things that are difficult to convey to an audience because i mean like like if you think about it rings are not inherently evil um and like the association that like at least like we in the anglo west have with them is is of marriage um at, which is something that like you know oh ha, ha, ball and chain stuff but like it is not something that we necessarily think of as like a great and evil and horrible thing um, and so they're having to take this like quite mundane object and turn it into something ominous and horrifying and like this like um, movable heart of darkness um and and to do that they're not going to um like any uh necessarily new or strange um film techniques they're they're really going back to 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 the 101 level stuff and it just works to to massive effect um, it, oh god um and it is just like really really uh beautiful stuff that they do and it's beautiful for its simplicity yeah for sure and uh speaking about things that are beautiful and almost beautiful in their simplicity <laughs> we got to talk about the concerning hobbits track uh best because song ever yeah, as you mentioned on the previous episode, it might be like literally your favorite piece of music ever. And I honestly don't think I can disagree with that. It just absolutely bangs. It's a it's like a warm hug or a warm embrace. Um, that's why you're going to hear concerning Hobbits twice during the course of this episode. It's, you know, there's a lot of iconic music in the Lord of the Rings films. I think, you know, Rohan, Gondor, um, the Fellowship March, like all of it, I feel is like iconic. I, you know, think about it. I, you know, play it in my head. I play it off Spotify all the time, but I think the crown jewel of the score is definitely, um, 
concerning hobbits. And when I talk about all the heavy lifting done in the scene for just building the Shire and the vibes of the Shire, and I talked about the greenery and the farms and all that stuff, what really, really, really sells it is just this piece of music. It is just fantastic. It is... I'm going to just start repeating the same superlatives and adjectives <laughs> I've already used. So I'll just give it to Emily and add whatever she wants to it at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is like, like with me, movie music, right? Like most of it, I mean, obviously most of it is average statistically, but like most of it is decent. Most of it is passable and you hear it and it does its job in the, in, in the film admirably. And then you never really think about it. And I actually think that is kind of interesting in itself because that, kind of defines the rest of Howard Shore's career, which is like, it's music that does the job and you don't ever need to think about it again. Um, And it is quite rare that you have music that um, is not just so good um, that it changes the film, but becomes the sort of symbol itself of the film. And I think there's, you know, really only a couple other composers that ever hit that level of of, of film scoring with any consistency, like Enrico Morricone or like uh, John Williams, obviously. Um, and Howard Shore, through his career, has not typically been one of those composers, but to get concerning Hobbits and obviously the wider score, but to get Concerning Hobbits in particular so perfectly that it manages in a very, very short period of time. I think the actual uh, song itself, when it's taken out of context of the wider score, is only like two and a half, three minutes. Um, It not only gets the sort of um, peacefulness and, and sort of joyousness of the Shire, but it gets that sort of sense that like there is something just beyond uh what's the line from pokan it's just behind the beyond the river bend um there is something waiting out there but there is also something there's this like shining golden heart at, at, at the center of this um and it, it it really is remarkable how much it conveys how it makes you think of these like verdant hills and um you know babbling brooks um and and does it with so little time as well like it really doesn't feature all that often time wise um in these films and yet it is almost the most iconic part of these movies after the ring itself yeah and when they come back to you know this light motif in later parts of this film and later films um especially with you know Sam's speech at the end of the two towers and of course you know the honoring of the hobbits um after the defeat of Sauron at uh, Minas Tirith um you know they play concerning hobbits or at least you know a bit of that as part of the overall you know musical piece for those scenes and it's just super cathartic um and it just played triumphantly um it it I can't even describe just how how much rich emotion just kind of overflows you. You know, we talk about the babbling brooks it incites, but the song really hits you like a wave um, in those moments. And it's used to such delightful effect because we don't really get a full concerning Hobbits piece again in any of these movies, like a full, you know, couple of minutes of the theme. But they're able to work in just the right bars at just the right moments um, at these really key junctures in the story. Um, and it just evokes that sense we got that warmth, that hug, whatever you want to call it, that we felt in the opening of Fellowship whenever they need to. It's just like, you know, it's Pavlovian in a way. Um, you hear concerning Hobbits and it instantly has those emotions, uh, emotions <laughs> gush up on you. Yeah, it really is just absolutely um like overpowered in in terms of its ability to to evoke a certain image, um, because I was just sort of 
trying to track through in my head there how often these other major film themes or iconic film themes show up in in their respective movies and and you know star wars is constantly returning to the force theme and obviously star wars has like 10 different iconic songs to it but it's constantly returning to them and it's in it and for a lot of the major ones it's playing them well for the major one it, it plays it through its credits as well to really hammer home that this is an important song but like you say concerning hobbits really never comes up in full again and they certainly don't play it in the credits and so the fact that this very short little piece of music that we only hear for about two and a half minutes at the start of a very long movie is the thing that people come away with i think really really speaks to it, it sort of um like emotional efficiency i would say for sure and this is actually a good spot to transition over to our token token book analysis because the title of this episode, the title of the piece of music we were just talking about, um, the title of the scene on the DVD is Concerning Hobbits. But um, that's actually not part of the narrative in the story as written by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, Concerning Hobbits is actually just a section of the prologue, which is kind of just Tolkien telling the audience kind of who hobbits are, what their life is, the fundamentals of hobbit society, and, you know, just a bunch of stuff that just exists outside of the main narrative of the story. Um, so as, you know, I don't think there's any, like, analytical thing there, but what, you know, Jackson did is really just take a bunch of stuff that Tolkien kind of, you know, shouted at his audience that's outside of the narrative and found a way to translate that into something that kind of works into this opening scene, even if it's just like stuff going on in the background or if it's parts of the score or, you know, just kind of the hustle and bustle of everyday Hobbit life. Yeah. And I think it also kind of speaks in a way to like the, um, you know, I, I tend to get kind of bored by the the argument that like the movies and the books necessarily have to be different or necessarily have to make different choices, um, especially with talking about Lord of the Rings. But I actually think in this case, what, what it's doing is um, relying on the different like medium context, because like in a book, it's totally fine to have 20 pages of exposition talking about the like length of the Brandywine River or the fact that it's actually like the Baranduin instead of the Brandywine and the Brandywine's just like an etymological corruption or whatever nonsense. Um in 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 movies and in film and in things that are filmed, you don't have that context um for presenting information. But what you do have is um a documentary context um and um uh a lot of the sort of um not not necessarily vox pop but like the, the the like portrayals of everyday life that you get in um documentaries especially like you know i live in scotland now so like we have a very long documentary history in scotland with um what people might call like b-roll footage of just people living their lives captured on film um and so peter jackson very cleverly kind of returns to these um documentary type shots of everyday life of normal life as a really brilliant way of conveying, as you say, all of this like really bulky and potentially unnecessary information that doesn't sacrifice what the point of that information is, but situates it better in terms of its like own artistic medium, which is film and not writing. Right, right. And uh, the next thing I wanted to hit on here was something you mentioned earlier, which kind of blew me away when I reread uh, The Lord of the Rings more recently, is that there's a lot of time that passes in between kind of the opening of the story and when Frodo eventually sets out on the road. That'll be, you know, part of the next couple episodes as well that we do of this podcast. But 
um, literally years go by. Um, whereas, you know, the way that the movies construct this is it all kind of feels of this probably happens, you know, over the course of a day, day and a half. Um, and then Frodo's kind of on the road in a couple weeks. Um, we don't get the sense that Gandalf, um, and this might be more for next episode, but kind of leaves to investigate the ring and comes back. Is it months later? Is it years later? Uh, 17 years. Yeah. You would never (laughs) guess that. And that also has to do with the fact that, um, you know, you talked about how Frodo is supposed to be age 33, which, you know, I look at Elijah Wood in this movie and I'm like, oh, he's supposed to be like an 18 year old. And, you know, functionally in terms of Hobbit aging, that's probably about right. Um, But they just, other than Bilbo, just kind of skip over all those specific you know, gaps in times or years or ages, um, just not to worry about that, not to confuse the audience. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the, and I'm going to bring this up a million times because I obviously have an ax to grind here, but like it is necessary, I think to kind of, um, uh, abridge this time period because in, in, in the gap, when Gandalf uh, disappears back to the East for 17 years, leaving Frodo and the Shire kind of on their own. Um, what he is ostensibly doing is um, researching uh, the ring and figuring out where it went after um, Isildur uh, buggered it at the uh, Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, and um, and he is chasing Gollum um, because Gollum is sort of the last person, last creature uh, that is known to have had the ring um, and what he does um, and it is just a one of the most incredible oversights um, in in the books um, is he spends 17 years chasing Gollum because he doesn't want to go to Minas Tirith where he knows that the information will be to go read um, Isildur and Anarion's letters um, because he doesn't like the steward Denethor and this is going to get into another one of my access to grind so I won't do it too much later but basically Gandalf spent 17 years doing all of the wrong things all of the unnecessary things um, before he turns around and comes back um, which is just like if you think too hard about it it's absolutely infuriating because the whole plot of Lord of the Rings could have been over 17 years before Sauron really racked up any power but Gandalf pissed about in the woods chasing Gollum um, or making Aragorn chase Gollum more accurately, um, which doesn't a sympathetic character make. Um, And in this, they're like, yeah, it's a couple days. It's fine. Like Gandalf doesn't make any missteps. And so you're like quite content to carry on with it and not have to think too hard, which I think is good for the blood pressure. Yeah, for sure. And just the first time I watched this movie, it just feels like, the start of this movie through the end of the return of the King takes over, you know, the course of like a year and a half. Cause it feels like, you know, Gandalf leaves for a couple weeks, comes back and then they hit, hit, hit the road. Um, that's kind of the, you know, sense that the film language gives me. Um, so to find out that no, you know, the start of fellowship to the end of the return of the King isn't, you know, about a year and a half. It's, there's like 17 years in that first chapter and then the rest of it happens kind of in a year and a half or whatever it is. Um, it just kind of blew my mind and I definitely made sense to cut it, um, from the, what's it called, uh, films and, you know, thinking about what you just said about how he just didn't want to go see Denethor, which I get it, but also like, dude, you really just pissed a lot of time away doing that. Yeah. And it's also like, I I mean, you know, Frodo doesn't necessarily go on a a massive emotional journey in the 17 years that he's waiting for Gandalf to come back and do anything about this. Um, But it is 17 years in which he has matured in some ways. And I think taking that out of the movies means that everything that happens to break Frodo emotionally in the first 
movie and a half of the trilogy feels a lot more poignant because like you say Elijah Wood looks like he's 18 and thinking about all of this stuff happening to an 18 year old is more viscerally jarring than thinking about it happening to a 50 year old not that it's better for happening to a 50 year old but like you kind of assume that they're slightly better emotionally equipped to handle it than some poor (laughs) child right and uh, you know like 18-ish, that late teen, that's, you know, a very standard age for the beginning of a hero's journey kind of story. Um, You know, Luke Skywalker is roughly 18 at the start. Um, You know, most of the main characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, like Jon Snow, Daenerys, they're like anywhere between 14 and 16, 17. Um, It's a very common starting age for, you know, the traditional hero's journey, whether you're going to subvert it or, you know, follow it like to its logical conclusion. Um, And even if like 33 or 50 is more of that age relative to hobbits, I just think it's a smart choice just to kind of leave it out because there's nothing of value that you really would gain later on in the films by, you know, being that finely tuned to the ages of these characters. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last bullet I got here, and this is, um, it's not really relevant, but uh, when uh, Gandalf rides in, uh, I mentioned that he's singing one of Bilbo's songs or poems. It's The Road Goes Ever On, which um, I'm going to read here for a second just because um, I want to, (laughs) for more or less. Um, I actually, um, you may know this, but I quit my job a month ago, and I actually put this poem in my farewell letter because, A, I was going to sell them on the fact that I'm doing a Lord of the Rings podcast. Please subscribe to my Patreon. Um, but also, I think it's very much, like we've talked about at length already, a lot about Lord of the Rings is about the story, you know, a story about stories, a story about the road, about how they go on and on, um, you know, whether we get off individually at some points from story, from the road, from life, um, story plows forward regardless, just like the road. Um, and the poem, I'm going to read it as a poem and not sing it. You know, you're welcome. Um, but it goes, the road goes ever on and on down from the door where it began. Now far ahead, the road has gone and I must follow if I can. Pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet. And whither then? I cannot say. And I'm sorry, I really should have rehearsed that to get like the right, you know, pentameter or whatever uh, in terms of the reading. Um, But I do really just like how, A, that's very much, you know, what the story is about. But also there's a lot of songs and poems that are cut out of the movies um, just for the sake of, you know, we can't really sit here and have characters sing during a three hour movie already without the songs. Um, so they find kind of clever ways to work in some of these lines, um, some of these songs, often in the background. Um, you get a lot more of those in the extended versions. Um, but I just wanted to uh, highlight this one because I wanted to, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I want to use this to make a, another one of my slightly controversial points, which is that this is one of Bilbo's poems and the books, and the elves of Rivendell mock him for it. And it is a brilliant poem. And the fact that the elves of Rivendell mock him for it shows that you should not support the elves because they suck. And Bilbo's poetry is awesome. Yeah, Dog well, the elves. elves are dying, so yeah, <laughs> fuck they, them. <laughs> they had it coming. <laughs> I've thought up an ending for my book. And he lived happily ever after, to the end of his days. And I'm sure you will, my dear friend. Goodbye, Gandalf. Goodbye, dear Baba. 
And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, Manuclear Bomb, which goes towards this and all the other projects I'm working on. Speaking of Manuclear Bomb, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontieras. And I've been Emily, and I do not have any other podcasts, but you can always come chat to me about Tolkien or anything else at Emily Robinson PT on Twitter. And raising a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Woohoo. Please, please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. We talked last time out about vibes, and boy, this first bit is really about the Shire of the Vibes, which, damn it, that should be Vibes of the Shire. (laughs) Let me start that again.